You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. We are at the end of a three-week sermon series on on satisfaction. And I've been making the point throughout this series that the quickest way to dissatisfaction is to focus primarily on what is not instead of what is. The quick way to dissatisfaction is to live in anxiety like Jeremiah says, like that shrub in the wilderness, like the process of digging those cisterns that ultimately become cracked. Living in anxiety and living protectively trying to fend off or hold off scarcity. Or living in regret over loss and ruminating on what we no longer have and and how we might get it back. The quickest way to dissatisfaction is to focus on those kinds of things that are not. And our series has been set in the the context of the exile in, in Israel's history, a very dissatisfying time for them. Israel's loss is extreme at at this point in their lives, with the Chaldean armies having marched into Jerusalem, torn down the walls and sacking the temple and taking folks off into captivity in Babylon. But when we're in the midst of an exile of grief or of, of loss or of dislocation, for the most part, all we want is what the Israelites wanted at that time, and that's for things to get back the way they were, for things to be restored to us like we knew them before that place of dislocation and loss that, that has induced that, that grief. But God's promise to us in the face of exile is actually that we can hope for something better than what we lost. That we can hope for something better than than what we think we want uh, to have restored. And Isaiah 43 is uh, an example of the way this promise gets issued. As in many places in Scripture, the promise of ultimate satisfaction is a promise that becomes fulfilled, and and when it is fulfilled, it, it, it absolutely exceeds our expectations for what we thought it might look like. Well, the context of of Isaiah, really 40 to 55, is addressing the the exiles at the end or toward the end uh, of the exile in Babylon. And the prophet, in inviting people to look forward to what God is going to do to redeem them, says this, beginning in, in verse 14 of Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake... I will send to Babylon and break down all the bars, and the shouting of the Chaldeans will be turned into lamentation. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things. Nor consider the things of old, for I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. 
the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, direct our attention away from those anxieties that we harbor, those fears that we nurse, those griefs that divert our attention and direct our attention to you. Help us to see where you are and by your spirit to hear your invitation to wait and to look forward to the new thing that you are about to do. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The latter part of this week, I was interested to be listening to the radio, and, and um, especially on NPR and things like the Marketplace Report. Uh, there was all sorts of buzz about the, the meeting of the, the Federal Reserve Board in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and, and especially about the chairman's speech that was to be given on Friday, Ben Bernanke's speech. It was fascinating to listen to all of the speculation about growth and how much growth there was and whether or not this percentage meant that or, you know, whether or not the, the little things in this part of the market were really countering those other things in that part of the market that were not very favorable. And things just sort of went on and on. And, and what I was so fascinated with is how much interest there was in this speech that uh, Chairman Bernanke, Bernanke was uh, going to, to give. And it was all about, the, the, the conversation around it was all this speculation about growth and slower growth or, or what's he going to say and, and will it make us feel better and, and tell us that we're growing and if you can't tell us that we're growing then tell us what you're going to do to get us growing again. And in essence what all of the media seemed to be saying was, without saying it, was calm our fears. Tell us when and how we're getting back to normal. Well, before you start writing me letters about how I'm not an economist and I shouldn't talk politics, um, <laughs> let me say I'm primarily interested in this as a theologian. <laughs> because the theologian in me is fascinated of how, with how much authority we give to this one man's opinion. It feels to me a bit like Jeremiah's day and looking to the high priest, to the great mediator of the gods of the economy, and asking him to assure us that there are signs in the heavens that point to recovery, and that if there aren't, that he will do his best to make the sacrifices to the right gods to see that those things happen. Give us a sign. Tell us it's all returning to normal as quickly as possible. It's interesting to me that what we want to hear from Mr. Bernanke is some sort of ray of hope. We want to hear some little bit of evidence that 
things are going to get back to where they were, that, that the ascent will, will begin uh, again. And yet it's also interesting to me how when we talk about hope in that way, we sort of turn hope into a very reasonable endeavor, don't we? Give us the stats. Show us the percentages. Show us these signs that, that things are going to turn around, and, and then we'll hope. It's a lot like in Jeremiah's day when the people were asking the priests and the, and the prophets to, to give a sign that there was a, a reason to believe that the, the, the exile was not going to last that long. Show us some evidence or some ray of light, and we'll believe. We'll hope again as soon as we see that sign. We want to turn hope into a reasonable endeavor. But what is absolutely accurate is that biblical hope is far, far from reasonable in that sense. You see... Biblical hope is not so much seeing a ray of light through the crowds and having a positive attitude as the result of it. Biblical hope is a choice to be steadfast in relationship with God against all odds, and even when the evidence suggests that it's an absolutely ridiculous thing to do. Biblical hope is not hoping that things will change. Biblical hope is relationship with the God who is in the midst of maintaining relationship with us irrespective of the circumstances. And what Isaiah 43 is, is an invitation to this kind of hope. It is, if you will, training in how to live in hope in the midst of an exile that we can do nothing to release ourselves from. Isaiah 43 is an assurance that the exile will end, but it comes with the message that redemption will come in ways that people cannot even begin to dream about or expect. And that that change, that end of the exile, will not simply be about restoring what was, but that the prophet will invite his people to imagine that something brand new is going to take place. So if you look at at the context of Isaiah 43, it's set in in Isaiah 40 to 55, which is a a whole section of Scripture that's that's really addressed to to the end of the exile in in Babylon. It it is an an invitation to hope that that starts with this great announcement with comfort, or for that comfort will come. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And it ends with the passage that, that we read uh, as the call to worship these last uh, three weeks. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Listen to the Lord. His word is coming to you and he will feed you. Trust in him to bring that food. As we read this invitation in Isaiah 43 that's set in this context, there's really three aspects of that invitation that I want to call our attention to this morning. Three aspects that invite us to remember things 
to focus on things that, that actually help us to live into or to rest in that invitation to divine hope. And the first of these things is the prophet's reminder, God's reminder through the prophet, that exile is not the last word. That what seems like the norm to the people who for 70 years had to be in one place, who many of which died there, and some of which were born there, to the people who were lost in that exile and wondering if they were ever getting out, the word that they needed to hear, the word that we all need to hear in the midst of whatever exile we're enduring, is that exile is not the last word. That even though at times by those waters of Babylon that we talked about last week, it seems like there is no reason to sing because all of the songs, all of the inspiration for the songs has gone away. That exile isn't the end of all things. It won't be the last word. And and God essentially says through the prophet Isaiah, your expectation of justice and liberty are not, those expectations are not out of line. That's something God will be about. For I will send to Babylon. I will break down the bars, it says. Um, uh, And the shouting of the, the Chaldeans will be turned to lamentation. Dislocation, in other words, and disconnectedness are not the norm in the kingdom of God. They are not God's desire for us. God is not not somehow sort of sadistically um, enjoying the fact that his people are being punished for their disobedience to him. But rather, the exile is this opportunity to deepen that relationship. There's so many places in Scripture where... Uh, some of them here in Isaiah where, um, actually it's in Hosea where uh, the image is used of God literally wooing his people out into the wilderness again to nurture relationship in the place where they are dependent upon him. To remember that love that they had at first. When God found Israel in the wilderness, Hosea says, it was like finding grapes in the desert. And so that dislocation and disconnectedness are not the desire of God. And what God wants his people to know is that evil will not have the last word. And that while it may feel like that that in the moment, God assures them that that is not his ultimate plan. So first of all, he says, remember that exile is not the last word. Exile Exile is not the end. And secondly, he says, as you live between past and future, as you live in this in-between space of exile, focus on the God who acts, the God who has done something in history. It's interesting, as you read on in this text, there seems to be a juxtaposition between two kind of contradictory admonitions. For on the one hand, it says, remember the exodus. Remember, I am the Lord who... Uh, verse 15 and following, who's your, your holy one, the creator, your king, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember that I freed you once, that I took you from that place of slavery and brought you into this new land. Don't forget the exodus. But on the other hand, The text goes on in verse 18 and says, But do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. You need to look forward 
to the new thing because now it springs forth and, and you will perceive it. So on the one hand, remember. On the other hand, forget. Remember. Look back, but not merely to what you had and how to get it back. Look back not to the Jerusalem of, of your longings, but look back to the rescue of God that took place in the Exodus, says the prophet. Look to the God who brought you into the land in the first place and look back to the relationship that he established with you in the, in the, the rescue from Egypt. But also look ahead. Look ahead not just to getting back to Jerusalem, not just to the restoration of life as you had it before. Look back not even to a second exodus. Look back to something greater than even that. Something much greater, knowing that the slavery of exile doesn't define you and it is your relationship with your Redeemer that defines you. So in the one sense, forget something, but also remember something. Forget the thought of what you think you need and look forward to the thought of what God might do that you have no idea what that might look like. And that leads to the third point in this process of receiving the invitation to hope. If the first point is about knowing that the exile is not the final word, if the second point is about focusing on the God who has been with us continuously throughout history, the third point is to remember that this new thing that God is doing will come as a complete surprise to us. Don't remember the former things nor consider the things of old. I'm about to do a new thing. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Satisfaction sneaks up on us. Satisfaction in the, the ultimate sense of that word that God offers is always a surprise. For it's not something that we run after and, and grab a hold of. It is something that literally sneaks up on us and grabs a hold of us. For in that moment, what we know is that we have been encountered by the God who wishes to feed us with the finest of the wheat and to satisfy us in the wilderness with, with honey from the rock. What redemption means is receiving a gift that we can't create for ourselves. It means coming upon water in a place where we would least expect to come upon water. And there drinking and understanding how God wishes to provide. God's story in Scripture tells us over and over and over again that God is in the business of redemption. But what we need to know about that word redemption is that redemption is not merely about reversing the effects of a loss. Redemption isn't about getting something back necessarily. It's about knowing and resting in the grace of knowing that the loss can never be the final word because God is still holding on. Redemption literally means freedom from slavery. It means someone paying a price for a slave and getting that freedom for that slave so that they can go about their own life as a freed person. 
It's about the, the image in the Psalms of, of God reaching down into the pit and pulling us up from that constricted place and setting our feet in the broad and open space of his grace. Redemption isn't about getting something back that we lost. It's about knowing that the loss is not the last word. It's tempting to think about getting back what we lost and that that redemption is merely a a remedy for our pain, merely a a kind of topical salve that, that dulls the ache and that helps us to get on with our lives. But no, it's much more than that. You see, most of our fears in exile have to do with whether or not relief is going to come. It has to do with how and when we're going to get back to where we were. But actually, redemption is God freeing us from the effects of that slavery and inviting us to take up a brand new life. And in that new life, we often bear the scars of the loss. I'm going to take a little risk here and make a congregational application. It's always a bit risky to say we in any sermon, but I'm here and I'm going to do that. Here at UPC, we have been through two years of pretty massive change. If you were here before those two years, you know that. You know that we have a new pastor. We've lost a lot of staff. We've had a a kind of violation of a rule that we all assumed that we would just keep going like this, up. We've had some dislocation and things look a little different around here than they looked before. Some people say that all change is viewed sometimes as loss. That's debatable, but it's a great quote for this place in the sermon. Um, (laughs) That all change is is somehow viewed as loss. And, And in the face of loss, it's tempting to want things to get back to where they were, wherever that was. And in the face of change, it's tempting to fear what might come as more change and to sort of fiercely protect as a result of that fear things that we hope will not go away or to live in regret about what has gone away and and to find those spaces of anger that sometimes result from that grief. But I want to invite us to pray a different prayer at this time. A prayer different from that of the, the exiles by the rivers in Babylon. I want to invite us to pray the prayer, Lord, just how is it that you are redeeming this? Just how is it that you are inviting us to a brand new place? What are those living waters going to look like that we are going to stumble upon out of your sheer generosity and grace? You know, in the midst of any kind of exile, whether it be personal, corporate, congregational, it's hard to envision what the new place will look like. And yet I imagine that those who are around 
the foot of the cross, had the same problem. It's hard to imagine when staring into the face of the the one, the crucified carpenter who hangs there, staring at his, his broken body and his shed blood. It's hard to imagine how that could possibly be an invitation to living water. But it is. It is, because as he says himself, if the grain of wheat doesn't die, if it doesn't fall into the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Because you see, life springs from that death and ushers us into a brand new place. So exile is something that we can't end on our own, and we all know that. But while we live there, we do have a choice. We have a choice between focusing on that thing about which we're afraid and focusing on all of the things that are not, or... We have the choice to live in faithfulness to a God who is promising to deliver us into something new. In the midst of exile, neither place, whether we're living in fear or living in faithfulness, neither of those states of being in the midst of exile feel like a comfortable place. But what I suspected is that it is better to entrust ourselves to the arms of God than to try and ruthlessly hold on to nothing but our fear. Let's pray. You bring life out of death. You bring hope out of despair. You invite us to partake of life. So by your spirit, work in us that we might hear and receive that invitation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.